Section 28 of Bullfinch's The Legends of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Charlemagne by Thomas Bullfinch. Section 28 Ogier the Dane, Part 2. Charlemagne had not forgotten the offence of Geoffroy, the king of Denmark, in withholding homage, and now prepared to enforce submission. But at this crisis he was waited upon by an embassy from Geoffroy, acknowledging his fault, and craving assistance against an army of invaders who had attacked his states with a force which he was unable to repel. The soul of Charlemagne was too great to be implacable, and he took this opportunity to test that of Ogier, who had felt acutely the unkindness of his father in leaving him, without regard or notice, fifteen years in captivity. Charles asked Ogier whether, in spite of his father's neglect, he was disposed to lead an army to his assistance. He replied, a son can never be excused from helping his father by any cause short of death. Charlemagne placed an army of a thousand knights under the command of Ogier, and great numbers more volunteered to march under so distinguished a leader. He flew to the succor of his father, repelled the invaders, and drove them in confusion to their vessels. Ogier then hastened to the capital, but as he drew near the city he heard all the bells sounding a knell. He soon learned the cause. It was the obsequies of Geoffroy the king. Ogier felt keenly the grief of not having been permitted to embrace his father once more, and to learn his latest commands. But he found that his father had declared him heir to his throne. He hastened to the church where the body lay, he knelt and bathed the lifeless form with his tears. At that moment a celestial light beamed all around, and a voice of an angel said, Ogier, leave thy crown to Guillon, thy brother, and bear no other title than that of the Dane. Thy destiny is glorious, and other kingdoms are reserved for thee. Ogier obeyed the divine behest. He saluted his stepmother respectfully, and, embracing his brother, told him that he was content with his lot in being reckoned among the paladins of Charlemagne, and resigned all claims to the crown of Denmark. Ogier returned covered with glory to the court of Charlemagne, and the emperor, touched with this proof of his attachment, loaded him with caresses, and treated him almost as an equal. We pass in silence the adventures of Ogier for several ensuing years, in which the fairy gifts of his infancy showed their force in making him successful in all enterprises, both of love and war. He married the charming Bellicine, and became the father of young Baldwin, a youth who seemed to inherit in full measure the strength and courage of his father, and the beauty of his mother. When the lad was old enough to be separated from his mother, Ogier took him to court and presented him to Charlemagne, who embraced him and took him into his service. It seemed to Duke Nemo and all the elder knights as if they saw in him Ogier himself as he was when a youth, and this resemblance won for the lad their kind regards. Even Charlo at first seemed to be fond of him, 
though after a while the resemblance to Ogier which he noticed had the effect to excite his hatred. Baldwin was attentive to Charlot, and lost no occasion to be serviceable. The prince loved to play chess, and Baldwin, who played well, often made a party with him. One day Charlot was nettled at losing two pieces in succession. He thought he could, by taking a piece from Baldwin, get some amends for his loss. But Baldwin, seeing him fall into a trap which he had set for him, could not help a slight laugh as he said, Checkmate. Charlot rose in a fury, seized the rich and heavy chessboard, and dashed it with all his strength on the head of Baldwin, who fell and died where he fell. Frightened at his own crime, and fearing the vengeance of the terrible Ogier, Charlot concealed himself in the interior of the palace. A young companion of Baldwin hastened and informed Ogier of the event. He ran to the chamber and beheld the body of his child bathed in blood, and it could not be concealed from him that Charlot gave the blow. Transported with rage, Ogier sought Charlot through the palace, and Charlot, feeling safe nowhere else, took refuge in the hall of Charlemagne, where he seated himself at table with Duke Nemo and Salomon, Duke of Brittany. Ogier, with sword drawn, followed him to the very table of the emperor. When a cup-bearer attempted to bar his way, he struck the cup from his hand and dashed the contents in the emperor's face. Charles rose in a passion, seized a knife, and would have plunged it into his breast, had not Salomon and another baron thrown themselves between, while Nemo, who had retained his ancient influence over Ogier, drew him out of the room. Foreseeing the consequence of this violence, pitying Ogier, and in his heart excusing him, Nemo hurried him away before the guards of the palace could arrest him, made him mount his horse, and leave Paris. Charlemagne called together his peers, and made them take an oath to do all in their power to arrest Ogier, and bring him to condign punishment. Ogier, on his part, sent messages to the emperor, offering to give himself up, on condition that Charlot should be punished for his atrocious crime. The emperor would listen to no conditions, and went in pursuit of Ogier at the head of a large body of soldiers. Ogier, on the other hand, was warmly supported by many knights, who pledged themselves in his defense. The contest raged long, with no decisive results. Ogier more than once had the emperor in his power, but declined to avail himself of his advantage, and released him without conditions. He even implored pardon for himself, but demanded at the same time the punishment of Charlot. But Charlemagne was too blindly fond of his unworthy son to subject him to punishment for the sake of conciliating one who had been so deeply injured. At length, distressed at the blood which his friends had lost in his cause, Ogier dismissed his little army, and, slipping away from those who wished to attend him, took his course to rejoin the Duke Guillaume, his brother. On his way, having reached the forest of Ardennes, weary with long travel, the freshness of a retired valley tempted him to lie down to take some repose. He unsaddled Beffroor, relieved himself of his helmet, lay down on the turf, rested his head on his shield, and slept. 
It so happened that Turpin, who occasionally recalled to mind that he was Archbishop of Reims, was at that time in the vicinity, making a pastoral visit to the churches under his jurisdiction. But his dignity of peer of France, and his martial spirit, which caused him to be reckoned among the preux chevaliers of his time, forbade him to travel without as large a retinue of knights as he had of clergymen. One of these was thirsty, and knowing the fountain on the borders of which Ogier was reposing, he rode to it, and was struck by the sight of a knight stretched on the ground. He hastened back and let the archbishop know, who approached the fountain and recognized Ogier. The first impulse of the good and generous Turpin was to save his friend, for whom he felt the warmest attachment. But his archdeacons and knights, who also recognized Ogier, reminded the archbishop of the oath which the emperor had exacted of them all. Turpin could not be false to his oath, but it was not without a groan that he permitted his followers to bind the sleeping knight. The archbishop's attendants secured the horse and arms of Ogier, and conducted their prisoner to the emperor at Soissons. The emperor had become so much embittered by Ogier's obstinate resistance, added to his original fault, that he was disposed to order him to instant death. But Turpin, seconded by the good dukes Nemo and Salomon, prayed so hard for him that Charlemagne consented to remit a violent death, but sentenced him to close imprisonment under the charge of the archbishop, strictly limiting his food to one quarter of a loaf of bread per day, with one piece of meat and a quarter of a cup of wine. In this way he hoped to quickly put an end to his life, without bringing on himself the hostility of the king of Denmark and other powerful friends of Ogier. He exacted a new oath of Turpin to obey his order strictly. The good archbishop loved Ogier too well not to cast about for some means of saving his life, which he foresaw he would soon lose if subjected to such scanty fare, for Ogier was seven feet tall and had an appetite in proportion. Turpin remembered, moreover, that Ogier was a true son of the church, always zealous to propagate the faith and subdue unbelievers. So he felt justified in practicing on this occasion what in later times has been entitled mental reservation without swerving from the letter of the oath which he had taken. This is the method he hit upon. Every morning he had his prisoner supplied with a quarter of a loaf of bread made of two bushels of flour. To this he added a quarter of a sheep or a fat calf, and he had a cup made which held forty pints of wine, and allowed Ogier a quarter of it daily. Ogier's imprisonment lasted long. Charlemagne was astonished to hear from time to time that he still held out, and when he inquired more particularly of Turpin, the good archbishop, replying on his own understanding of the words, did not hesitate to affirm positively that he allowed his prisoner no more than the permitted ration. We forgot to say that when Ogier was led prisoner to Soissons, the abbot of saint Ferron, observing the fine horse Beffroir, and not having at the time any other favor to ask of Charlemagne, begged the emperor to give him the horse, and had him taken to his abbey. 
He was impatient to try his new acquisition, and when he had arrived in his litter at the foot of the mountain where the horse had been brought to meet him, mounted him and rode onward. The horse, accustomed to bear the enormous weight of Ogier in his armour, when he perceived nothing on his back but the light weight of the abbot, whose long robes fluttered against his sides, ran away, making prodigious leaps over the steep acclivities of the mountain, till he reached the convent of Jouer, where, in sight of the abbess and her nuns, he threw the abbot, already half-dead with fright, to the ground. The abbot, bruised and mortified, revenged himself on poor Beffroy, whom he condemned in his wrath to be given to the workmen, to drag stones for a chapel that he was building near the abbey. Thus ill-fed, hard-worked, and often beaten, the noble horse Beffroy passed the time while his master's imprisonment lasted. That imprisonment would have been as long as his life if it had not been for some important events which forced the emperor to set Ogier at liberty. The emperor learned at the same time that Carahue, king of Mauritania, was assembling an army to come and demand the liberation of Ogier, that Guillon, king of Denmark, was prepared to second the enterprise with all his forces, and, worse than all, that the Saracens under Bruyere, sultan of Arabia, had landed in Gascony, taken Bordeaux, and were marching with all speed for Paris. Charlemagne now felt how necessary the aid of Ogier was to him, but in spite of the representations of Turpin, Nemo, and Salomon, he could not bring himself to consent to surrender Charlot to such punishment as Ogier should see fit to impose. Besides, he believed that Ogier was without strength and vigor, weakened by imprisonment and long abstinence. At this crisis he received a message from Bruyere, proposing to put the issue upon the result of a combat between himself and the emperor or his champion, promising, if defeated, to withdraw his army. Charlemagne would willingly have accepted the challenge, but his counsellors all opposed it. The herald was therefore told that the emperor would take time to consider his proposition and give his answer the next day. It was during this interval that the three dukes succeeded in prevailing upon Charlemagne to pardon Ogier and to send for him to combat the puissant enemy who now defied him. But it was no easy task to persuade Ogier. The idea of his long imprisonment and the recollection of his son bleeding and dying in his arms by the blow of the ferocious Charlot made him long resist the urgency of his friends. Though glory called him to encounter Bruyere, and the safety of Christendom demanded the destruction of this proud enemy of the faith, Ogier only yielded at last, on condition that Charlot should be delivered into his hands, to be dealt with as he should see fit. The terms were hard, but the danger was pressing, and Charlemagne, with a returning sense of justice, and a strong confidence in the generous though passionate soul of Ogier, at last consented to them. Ogier was led into the presence of Charlemagne by the three peers. The emperor, faithful to his word, had caused Charlot to be brought into the hall where the high barons were assembled, his hands tied and his head uncovered. 
When the emperor saw Ogier approach, he took Charlot by the arm, led him towards Ogier, and said these words, I surrender the criminal. Do with him as you think fit. Ogier, without replying, seized Charlot by the hair, forced him on his knees, and lifted with the other hand his irresistible sword. Charlemagne, who expected to see the head of his son rolling at his feet, shut his eyes and uttered a cry of horror. Ogier had done enough. The next moment he raised Charlot, cut his bonds, kissed him on the mouth, and hastened to throw himself at the feet of the emperor. Nothing can exceed the surprise and joy of Charlemagne at seeing his son unharmed and Ogier kneeling at his feet. He folded him in his arms, bathed him with his tears, and exclaimed to his barons, I feel at this moment that Ogier is greater than I. As for Charlot, his base soul felt nothing but the joy of having escaped death. He remained such as he had been, and it was not till some years afterwards he received the punishment he deserved, from the hands of Huon of Bordeaux, as we have seen in a former chapter. End of section 28